You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. On a desolate plain near the Peruvian Andes is evidence that thousands of years ago, man may have known how to fly. Mega machines cutting through solid rock. The transportation of multi-ton stone blocks. Modern aircraft carrying millions of people each day around the world. And space shuttles sending humans to the stars. And lift off of endeavor. But are these examples of modern technology? Or is there evidence that these incredible achievements existed on Earth thousands of years ago? Great Pyramid of Egypt. Built as a tomb for the Pharaoh Cheops, it's made of two and a half million stone blocks. Some of the biggest weigh up to 80 tons and were transported from quarries hundreds and hundreds of miles away. And that was a thousand years before the invention of the wheel. To Eric von Daniken that posed a huge question. Not why the aliens didn't give us the wheel, but another big question. Did ancient aliens come to Earth and teach our ancestors powerful technologies? Ancient alien astronauts on this episode of Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Karen Stolzno and Ben Radford, we talk about monsters, science, and skepticism. On this episode of Monster Talk, we're pleased to welcome back Dr. Ken Fader. Ken teaches archaeology at Central Connecticut State University and was our guest previously on the very popular episode we had on giants. Ken is the author of one of the best books that combines skepticism and archaeology, and it's called Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology. A link to this book will be in the show notes. And if you can only have one skeptical book in your collection, I recommend you get 
The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan. But if you can get two books in your collection, the second book should be Ken's book. And if you can afford three or four books in your collection, Dr. Fader recommends that those also be his book. In all seriousness, though, Ken's book is a fabulous primer on understanding science, recognizing pseudoscience, and engaging in archaeology empowered by critical thinking. Monster Talk. Now, now, growing up, did you have any interest in ancient astronauts? Mm, well, I guess I'm familiar with um, with some of the, the notable books, like uh, Chariots of the Gods, but no, I can't say it was something that uh, was a particular concern to me uh, at all. I didn't I think I was it... a reptilian or something. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, uh, monster movies and uh, The Twilight Zone, and one of the first things I saw relative to this topic was uh, a documentary hosted by... Um, Rod Serling, no, that was right, yeah. Hosted by Rod Serling called uh, In Search of Ancient Astronauts. Mm-hmm. And um, In Search of Ancient Astronauts later went on to sort of spawn the TV show In Search Of. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I should be very grateful then. I mean, yeah, this is in the same sense that I am, which is that it had a huge cultural impact on uh, exposed me to the paranormal, right? Oh, me too, me too. Yeah. It's horribly unskeptical, but one of my favorite shows of all time. Yeah. I think it's the music and Nimoy. And, and the Nimoy, yeah, it's got the, the Nimoy factor. So Yes, yeah. And uh, just some of the topics that they treat, like Coral Castle, that's my favorite episode. Yeah, and you say that, uh, you mean Coral Castle, not the host of the NPR, wait, wait, don't tell me, or the... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't mean that one, but we should do an episode on that someday. I'm sure we can find someone to speak oh, about. Yeah, well, maybe, who, maybe me. I've done an investigation. Someone who's looked into it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, ancient astronauts have been the fodder upon which many uh, pop culture TV shows, uh, well, obviously that's pop culture, but TV shows and books and stories and movies have come from. So, um, Yeah, and I think it's a sort of running theme for a lot of people, and I'm not sure if they're always aware of where the ideas come from, though, and, and the ideas do seem to be very scattered. Yeah, the um, I, I think um, the idea, and let's just make a clarification, that we're talking about ancient astronauts in the sense that did ancient aliens come to Earth and impact, influence, or manipulate the development of humankind? Yes. Um, and that would be different than panspermia, which is the somewhat serious uh, scientific theory that life on Earth may have actually been seeded from another planet by way of um, not so much a spaceship, but uh, a meteor from a planet that had life coming to Earth and sort of starting the process. So, Yeah, I think they're, they're very different things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, within pop culture, one of my favorite authors is H.P. Lovecraft, and uh, he uh, really uh, talked about that quite a bit, that aliens had come to Earth. And not only did they create humans, but it was like... An after like an accident, not a, we're not important, right? So a lot of his fiction involves the idea that humans who think they're so great discover that their their, their place in the cosmos is tiny and insignificant. But it was all fiction. Oh, whereas sure it was. These other tell authors. yourself tell yourself that. Yeah, it's all. Uh, <laughs> if it makes you sleep better. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it no, I mean yeah, he made it all up as fiction, but um. I think his work it was a direct response to the work of Albert Einstein and the work that was going on with astronomers at the time. 
Um, I think he personally found the idea that we were insignificant, literally from a cosmological perspective, uh, horrifying and wanted to kind of use that idea in his fiction. So, uh, so when did it turn woo? Oh, when did it turn woo? Well, I guess we can talk to uh, our guest today, Dr. Ken Fader, about that. But my understanding is that the book called The Morning of the Magicians uh, was probably the first big treaties on the idea that we had been seeded by ancient astronauts who directly impacted us. But the the guy who turned it all super famous was, of course, Eric Von Daniken mm-hmm. in his book, Chariots of the Gods, which uh, last time I checked, it had over 40 printings. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot uh, of damage. Yeah, yeah. He, he really has had a huge impact. Um, so we'll get Dr. Fader on in just a moment. Um, and ask him some questions you about it. You have to get out your editing tools as well, from what I hear. Yeah, yeah, because he's a salty, salty man. <laughs> we have to audit one of his classes sometime. Wouldn't that be fun? I think he's mm-hmm. probably, we had, in fact, we've had so many, many, so many people asking for him to come back, and also so many people mentioning that they really thought it would be fun to take one of his classes. So, <laughs> um, Back by request then. Yep, it looks like he's available now, so let's uh, go ahead and call him in. Monster Dog. Hello, Dr. Vader? Yeah, it's Kenny. Hey, Kenny. <laughs> People say Dr. Fader in my presence. I look for my dad because he's a Dr. Fader. So I think we, uh-huh. they're talking to my dad. Where the hell is he? There you go. <laughs> so how are we doing? Good, good. Uh, is he is... hot where you live? Um, it, yeah, that would actually mean I'd have to go outside and find out. Oh, um, you don't want to do that. Yeah, I, I live in the cellar, and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. No problem. It's it's. Can I say this as uh, as forthrightly as I possibly can? It's f-ing hot here. I <laughs> honestly, yeah, our listeners would be disappointed if you didn't say it. Then. Oh, all right. Well, you know what? It's f-ing hot. It's, what's the Monty Python? It's hot enough to boil a monkey's bum. That's where whereabouts are you? Huh? Whereabouts are you in the country? She's from I'm Australia, so she talks funny. So bear with me. No, oh, I, I had no okay. idea what the f*** she was saying. I live in Connecticut. So <laughs> that's, southern- really, that's really going to help during this interview, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. So uh, it's southern New England, and we are, I guess, 10 degrees cooler than it is what just a little bit south of us, Washington, D.C. and Virginia. It's ridiculously hot there. I mean, o- over 100. So yeah. I'm really crabby. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Should we postpone the interview? No, absolutely not. In fact, I'm better when I'm crabby, actually. Excellent. Oh. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Nastier. Okay, good. Absolutely. So, <laughs> well, I guess we should get started uh, talking about um, sort of the history of the literature, right? So right. we briefly talked about last time um, the book, The Morning of the Magicians. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think we really spent much time on what has become sort of the superstar of the of the genre, uh, Chariots of the Gods. Absolutely, yeah. So, so Eric von Donegan. Yeah. So, what can you tell us about Eric's work, and um, or even in Morning of the Magicians, if you want to talk about that? Well, I, let me let me start with you know how I was fi- found out about von Donegan in the first place. I was off at college, right, and um, I had to come home. It was maybe like Thanksgiving. I was a freshman in college, and it was back in the, what is it, like the late 60s? Yeah, late 69. And uh, my, my, 
mother wouldn't let me in the house because my hair was so like crazy long. I couldn't get through doors and stuff. It was the 60s, you know? So I went to go get – I had to go get my hair done at like a – you know, a, it was actually a unisex hair salon as opposed mm-hmm. to a barber shop. And so it was cool because it was the first time I'd ever had my hair done by a, by a woman and – you know, I was like, I don't know, 17 or 16 and a half, 17. So that was about the closest I had come to having sex, you know, getting my hair <laughs> yeah. by a woman. And in any event, so, you know, she asked me, you know, she, as they are wont to do, she asked me what I do. And I said, oh, I'm a college student. What do you study? And I said, um, I'm studying archaeology. And her reaction was classic, typical, oh, I've always been interested in that. And I tell my students that, you know, if you do use that line, if you're an accounting major and you're trying to pick up a girl and you say, hey, I'm an accounting major, they never say, they will never say, I've always been interested, interested in accounting. Just isn't going to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's Wonder true. Archaeology, that's, 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 that's good stuff, right? So when I said I was, I was an archaeology student, her immediate reaction was, oh, I've always been interested in that. What do you think about this guy who says that spacemen built the pyramids? Yeah, you're getting like this rumbly sound and it's like, like wind or something. Like wind, yeah. Like oh, it's, it's, man, you're making me turn off the fan. I'll probably pass out. Oh yeah, well I get the same problem. I'm sitting in a hot. I've got my air conditioner turned off just for this. So All right, how's that? The other thing that's making sort of noise in the background is my computer. It's got the the fan is. Oh, no, we're okay with oh, that. that. That'll be that's fine. Yeah. So I, right? I hate to make you yeah. sweat. I really do. But no, oh, you love it. Come on. We had such a bad. It was like the best interview, and then like the shit sound quality. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. So. So, oh uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That was yeah. totally horrible. Yeah. So I, I, I like. I really think we. Oh, our fans have been begging for you to come back. Right? Oh my God! And please. They, no, no, seriously. Don't encourage me, please. Yeah, no, yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> Big mistake. And they all promised they'd buy two more copies of your book. Oh uh, my God! Yeah, <laughs> maybe three or four. They're yeah. they make excellent Christmas presents, or you know, whatever. You know, whatever holiday you want. They make they're they're fantastic. Absolutely. All right. So let me let me reset the scene. So you're in a chair and uh, uh, being aroused by a woman who's touching your hair. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, absolutely. She's but lauding no, your choice of education, right? <laughs> totally. And she and she asks, "What do you think about this guy who says that the spacemen built the pyramids?" Now you got to understand, I'm lying down there. And this woman's got like sharp implements in her hands. And I'm concerned because I think she's nuts because I had never heard of such a silly thing. And I said, no, I actually have never heard about that. This guy who says that spacemen built the pyramids. And she says, oh, I, I thought you said you were an archaeologist. Uh-huh. Said, oh, my God. I said, yeah, but I've never heard that. She goes, oh, well, you know, you, you, it's everybody's talking about it. And I said, well, I, I, I kind of doubt that there's anything to it, but I, I'll look into it. I kind of forgot about it. Went back to school, and it was a couple of months later, and it was the middle of the night, and the radio was on in the background, and it was you know some, some local public station. And a review came on of a book called Chariots of the Gods by Eric Von Donneken, a Swiss author, who said that spacemen built the pyramids. And I hear this, and I go, oh, my God, this, 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 this hairstylist, she, she was referring to something that was real and not just sort of in her yeah. hallucinatory haze. And I listened to it. And I said, oh, I got it. I have to get a copy of this book. So I ran out to like a used bookstore and got a paperback copy of Chariots of the Gods. And I started thumbing through it. And the thing is, it was sort of, you know, it was, it was, the, uh, what, the, it was like archaeological pornography. 
It was one of those things when you're when you're 16 and your your buddy gives you a, some porn book and says, "Yeah, turn to any page. It's awesome." Well, the Von Donikins book was like that. It was turned to any page, and it was pure idiocy. And even as an undergraduate taking a couple of courses in archaeology, but the long-standing history in it, I was turning pages and realizing. This guy has no idea what he's talking about. This is just made up. This is stuff that people have known has been wrong for for decades or even centuries. I read through the book, and then I remembered something, which was that back when I was in high school, I had actually joined a a book, a paranormal book club, where you get like four books for a buck, and then you have to buy like one or two other books, and you're done with them. And one of the books that I selected as one of my four was a book called Morning of the Magicians. And I went back and looked at it after I had read Von Donneken. I said, oh, my God. The stuff that I'm reading in Von Donneken is is cribbed right from Morning of the Magicians, which was a book very popular in Europe in the early 1960s, uh, translated into English in the middle to late 60s. And so it, it, it was about the time that Von Donneken was writing Chariots of the Gods. The thing was being translated into dozens of languages. And the interesting thing was that Von Donneken, nowhere in Chariots of the Gods did Von Donneken credit the authors of Morning of the Magicians with the, as being the source of his ideas. Now, I don't know that they were, but it was, it was pretty interest, an interesting coincidence if, in fact, he had not read Morning of the Magicians as a European um, and had sort of incorporated some of their ideas into his Chariots of the Gods. Yeah, but which, it's a pattern, right? Because notice he didn't credit the ancient Egyptians for building the pyramids either. Oh, there you go. Exactly so, right? So, so yeah, I mean, it was just sort of crazy. So I, I, be, I actually then found out that, in fact, he was working on another book, and I began collecting his books and similar books that had the same theme, that the archaeological record what could be only really could be understood as a result of the direct, very personal uh, um, uh, influence by extraterrestrial aliens. And uh, I, you know, I just decided that you know maybe I had to look more into this. And when act, when I became um, a graduate student, I still I maintained this interest in sort of these w- very fringe and fringe area kinds of archaeology. And then when I became a, a professor, I, I actually walked into a class one day. Had, they taught they told me here I was brand new, you know, first year teaching, and they told me I needed to teach a course that was called Search in Anthropology. And I said, well, what, what does that mean? They go, it's whatever the hell you want it to mean. Teach them whatever you want. And it was this very, very low-level introductory course. And I walked in and I said, hell. I asked my students, well, listen, I don't have a syllabus. It's the first time I've ever taught this thing. What do you want to know about? What do you want to learn about? This is like 1977. And a lot, even this is you know, some years after Von Donneken's first book. It's still really popular. Um, and a bunch of the kids in the class said, well, if this is a class about archaeology, we want to learn about ancient astronauts. Sure. And, along with Atlantis <laughs> and, and a bunch of other stuff. So I said, okay, why the hell not? So I went back, pulled out all my Eric Von Donikins, and I read all the books again. And that's when I really started thinking seriously about, all right, what, what is it about these books? What, what are the major primary themes? And I was able to, to extract – Three fundamental claims or themes or hypotheses, if you want to call them that, in Von Donneken's books. The first one I called um, the horny astronaut hypothesis <laughs> because essentially what Von Donneken was saying was extraterrestrials millions of years ago, all right, a couple of million years ago, three million years ago, landed on Earth, 
they got out of their spaceship and figure, you know, even at the speed of light, if they could travel that fast, it's still, it's a big universe. They've been cooped up there in a long time. They exit the spaceship. And what's the first thing they start? What is the first thing they do? They start cruising for checks. In Von Donneken's hypothesis, they actually find females. The spacemen are always spacemen. They find female primates. They mate with them. And the mating results in the next step of evolution. Now, oh. I, you know, it, it, I, I used to love Star Trek a lot. And, you know, Kirk was sort of a dog. I mean, maybe, maybe right. these guys are all kind of <laughs> like Kirk. But they literally and – I, and I joke about this in class – and only a few students object, but it's like if you've ever gone to a museum, you know, a museum where they have dioramas of, a, of human evolution, or if you go online and you Google Australopithecus, very often you'll see an image of Lucy, who is a three and a half million year old fossil from Eastern Africa. She's maybe four feet tall, weighed 60 pounds, and is a very early example of a bipedal hominid, of, of, some, of an, an individual walking upright the way we do and not on all fours like a chimpanzee or a gorilla. Now, I don't want to cast aspersions on Lucy, but she essentially looks like an upright chimpanzee. In other words, from a human perspective, not particularly attractive. Yeah, but two things, though, Ken. you got to remember, they already had the technology of liquor, and she was easy. You know, I see, listen, the... the I, I'm telling you, what Von Donneken says that they mated with these critters and that they kept coming back and that every stage of human evolution that, the, that, that paleoanthropologists find is the ne- that next stage was wrought by subsequent matings of extraterrestrials with these, these, um, these hominids. I, Earth got the reputation of being a kind of a party planet. Yeah, and yeah. they would arrive and they would start boinking the, the, the hominids. And that was the, res- the result was the next – whatever the next step in evolution was, that was that step. And I thought that okay, so we're 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 all descendants of aliens then. Absolutely, yes. Oh, for sure, for sure. And the the you know the, the funny thing is that I think it was um, Carl Sagan, one of one of you know great spectacular thinker. Um, he was interviewed about von Donneken. This is also back in the seventies, and he said about that that hypothesis. He said, "Look, you know, as a human being." Or as a human ancestor, you probably would be more sec- more successful. This is Carl talking, mating with a petunia than with an extraterrestrial alien, because at least you and the petunia evolved on the same planet. And so the the notion that a creature, you know, the frogmen of Alpha Centauri could land here, have the Ooh. matching DNA, much less the matching physical parts, where they could mate with Australopithecus and actually produce fertile offspring, is just it's hilarious, and yet it was one of the major themes in Von Donneken's books. Later on, he sort of backed off. Well, maybe he says it was an artificial mutation, whatever the hell that means. Mm. And how, you know, they, they brought like a, a DNA lab here to muck with our DNA to produce the next stage in evolution. Just pure, pure silliness. The second hypothesis I called the inkblot hypothesis, and that deal was, you know, the Rorschach test, right? So you have this image, it's ink, you fold it, you open it up, and it's this bizarre image, and there's nothing really there. It's all whatever is in your mind. So, you know, a normal person looking at an inkblot, whatever it looks like, will always say, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind? The normal person will always say sex. No matter what it looks like, you know, sex. That makes you normal. If you say a butterfly or a cloud, there's clearly something wrong with you. Von Donneken, Von Donneken's application of the inkblot hypothesis is, hey, look, 
whatever he sees on a cave wall that may, maybe it looks like a geometric pattern or some strange ghostly image, to his way of thinking, all of those are the result of our ancestors hiding behind a rock, secreted in a cave. They watch a rocket ship land. They watch E.T. step out, walk around, get back in the rocket, fly away, and our ancestors are so amazed and astonished by this, they go immediately to that cave wall and they, they, they paint this image. So that where um, archaeologists say, well, this looks a lot like a guy wearing a, 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 a costume to make him appear to be like a deer. We know people do that all over the world. Or this looks like a person who maybe is, is, is floating in the air because he's a spirit. In every case, Von Donneken interprets that as direct evidence of contact between our ancestors and extraterrestrial aliens. I actually have a, a fun exercise to do with my students to say, look, we open any of Von Donneken's books. I say, you have to hide the caption where he tells you what it is. Now, just using your imagination, what does that look like? And kids will say, well, that looks like a robot. Okay, that, that means we've got extraterrestrial aliens. That looks like a ghost. No, because he's, maybe it's an alien. Oh, that one looks like an animal. No, 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 it's an alien. And so if, if everything you look at, you interpret through that lens, of course, that's what you see. The third hypothesis, I, uh, to my way of thinking, is the most offensive and sort of silly of all. And that is... The archaeological record, according to Von Donneken, is filled with examples of technological leaps, of architectural, mathematical, agricultural, metallurgical sophistication that, according to Von Donneken, our ancestors were incapable of figuring out by themselves. That's why I call – this has actually been called by a, a, another anthropologist, John Amonhundro, the – our ancestors, the dummies hypothesis. So our ancestors are all – the way I phrase it, it's like the extraterrestrial aliens are like the Peace Corps, right? It's the extraterrestrial Peace Corps. They land on Earth. They find a whole bunch of really dumb human ancestors, and they have to teach us how to plant crops, how to smelt iron, how to develop an alphabet, how to make a calendar. Because otherwise, we would still be getting stepped on by woolly mammoths and barely able to drag our knuckles along right behind them. So, so in, in Von Donneken's opinion, all this cool stuff that archaeologists love to talk about that, we, that you see on all the cable channels with the Sphinx and pyramids and Stonehenge and a whole bunch of other stuff, oh, humans couldn't have figured that out. That's way too sophisticated, way too difficult. It's the result of this extraterrestrial Peace Corps landing on Earth and teaching everybody, bringing everybody culture and civilization and, and changing our lives forever. That's, that one, as an archaeology student, even in, in the late 60s, early 70s, I knew that was just stupid. And it continues to be this notion that our human ancestors just weren't smart enough to figure stuff out on their own, and they needed Peace Corps, again, the, the frog people from Alpha Centauri, to teach them how to do agriculture, math, calendars, or build pyramids. I was going to say, but do you have any opinions about it? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, you know, I, every day I have a different opinion about it, but, you know, stupid, dumb, uh, <laughs> idiotic. Um, there, so I have a different word every day. I have like a word calendar, and every day I have a different word for that hypothesis. Uh, this is some worrying stuff to hear that you've uh, encountered everyone from hairdressers through to uh, undergrad students who believe in this. Do you think that this is indicative of the public perception of what archaeology is about? 
You know, the, the, that's a, the, the reason that's a fantastic question is because I've actually done surveys. And I've been, since the, what, mid-1980s, I've been asking students, mostly kids at my university, but I've done surveys uh, across the country. And people have used my surveys in, in other countries, um, in the U.K. and in Canada. Um, I've used my surveys. And one of the questions, of course, asked is, okay, how, how do you respond to this notion that extraterrestrials helped our ancestors? And do you strongly agree? Do you mildly agree? Do you not know? Do you mildly disagree? Do you strongly disagree? And the deal is, the thing that's, that's I don't know if this is happy or sad, uh, the United States tends to come out worse than other countries um, of, among those who have been surveyed. And that generally speaking, about a third of all of our students either not that many strongly agree, but the combined strongly agree, mildly agree. It's about a third, and that number doesn't change very much through time. Um, mm. There's also a very disturbingly high percentage of kids who go, uh, I don't know, um, <laughs> but, like they really have heard of this, they've thought about it, but they don't know which side to come out on. And there's a, 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 a relatively small percentage, also about between 25 and 30 and, and 33 percent, that that the combined strongly disagree and mildly disagree. Um, and the deal is that the, the cool thing that was cool for me was that over the last several years, the, the numbers have been slowly declining in the agree, the agree strongly agree because Van Donneken has sort of become a non-issue him personally. His books don't sell nearly as well as they used to, at least not in the United States. Um, but the ancient alien series that's on uh, one of the, the cable channels, I think that that's going to change this. I think that, the, that now I hear a lot more from, um, from emails and a lot more from my own students asking me about that show. Yes, Giorgio Tsoukalos' yeah. uh, series. That they, they actually the, – uh, listen, i got to be honest with you. The producer of that show asked me – to participate. This is a couple of years ago. I got an email from him and I wrote back and sometimes I get emails from people who they just know I am a name associated with a topic, but they don't know where I come down on it. So I mean, I've got, I've fairly frequently get phone calls from people who want me to be on shows about Atlantis and their expectation is, is that I'm going to, you know, that I have been to Atlantis. I have talked to people <laughs> on Atlantis. And when I tell them, well, no, actually what I will tell you is that it, the thing is entirely made up by Plato. They suddenly back off. They go, they're not so interested in interviewing me. But in any event, I got an email from one of the producers of that, that series, and my response was, I'd be happy to be on your show, but you, you should know that I think that the ancient astronaut hypothesis is, is execrable bullshit, and <laughs> I haven't heard back from them rather remarkably. So I, I guess maybe they're, they're not interested in the other point of view. But um, and Giorgio, Giorgio actually at some point I was actually I I never met him, but there was a National Geographic that I was on, you know, an is it real thing on the ancient astronauts, and oh, yeah. I was that you know beacon of sanity in the sea of madness, and and Giorgio <laughs> was on as well, and Giorgio he sent me a package of of a whole bunch of stuff, and you know he and he wants me to come out to California. I guess the ancient astronaut society there out there they have like a clubhouse. And he invited me to go. It, it started sounding a little bit too South Parkish for me, you know, like ooh, these the, the manly men all get together at the clubhouse and discuss ancient astronauts. So I, I, I you know, I begged off. But the, it, the 
In the history of archaeology, one of the, the, the first guys who claimed to be an archaeologist it was, this is in the, um, the, I think it's the 1700s. His name was Giovanni Battista Belzoni. And he was a guy who went to Egypt and like dug up a whole lot of stuff and brought it back to Europe and sold it. And I tell my students that Belzoni's only training, he had no training as an archaeologist. And in his previous life, uh, previous life meaning the job he had before he was an archaeologist, he was a circus strongman. So that was, that was his training as an archaeologist. Well, Giorgio, before he became this ancient astronaut guy, was, I guess, the producer of weightlifting competitions. I see a curious connection there. If you go to Giorgio's website, at least the last time I went, there's a, a photo of him, you know, arm in arm with Arnold Schwarzenegger at some <laughs> weightlifting competition. Yep. So maybe, maybe weightlifters and, and circus strongmen just have that, that they, they become. Uh, attracted to archaeology for some bizarre reason. I, uh, however, I've never been a circus strongman, and I do uh, as little weightlifting as I possibly can. <laughs> so maybe I'm the exception that I don't know proves the rule. Or you know, may, the, you know, you, you joke, but maybe there's something. I'm strong, and I can't lift a pyramid block. How could anyone? <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but, so it must be, um, a, you know, levitation or something like that. That just makes mm. sense. But you know, Giorgio wants to debate you. So, uh, <laughs> oh my god, yeah, cool. He's, well, uh, listen, wanted, as he, long as he doesn't want to arm wrestle me, because well, then. He's <laughs> well, if we could ever get both of you at Dragon Con down here in Atlanta, we'd love to have that debate. Oh so. my god, that would be sort of scary, huh? Uh, I bet it would be well attended and amusing. So yeah, probably so. Um, he's an interesting guy for different reasons, but you both have really. I'm just going to say interesting hair. Well, listen, listen. Uh, I, I've, people have pointed this out to me so that maybe there is some, maybe there's something there, you know? Yeah. Something with the, uh, I don't know, but my aura has caused this to happen. I've got to tell you, mine <laughs> is earned, man. This is, this is, I was born this way. Well, not, not with it quite as white as it is now, but it's always been this way. I, I do nothing to it. And repeat, nothing to it. So I, I don't think know I've, how Giorgio gets his. I don't and think honestly, I've seen your hair. <laughs> yeah, What's it look well, like? My, it's, it's really curly and, mm-hmm. and like uh, what, can I sideshow say? Bob. Listen, here's the deal. Here's ah, got the visual. Right. Yeah, well, so- I don't know about that. I have an African-American <laughs> colleague who's got dreadlocks who says that, that he calls my hair a Jufro. I've heard that before. Yeah. 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 So maybe that's what it is. I, you know, it is what it is. And, and it used to be sort of reddish brown. And then I went and made the mistake of having children. And they sucked Nails all the brown out of it, man. It's just it's white as white can be. You're like, you still get it. It. yeah, mine's going fast. So. Yeah, yeah. You still get it cut by believers? No, right now, I, you know what it is? I, I, I let my wife do it for me. I take a shower and I go, you know, it's getting long. Cut it. And she doesn't charge me hardly anything, so I'm, I'm okay with that. We use the ancient astronauts' technique of floby. Uh, I can't say more. <laughs> remember that? Yeah, I remember the floby. Absolutely. So. Could we get specific, and could you tell us about some of the claims yeah, about yeah. ancient let's, astronauts? Let's, I mean, we've, t- we've talked about pyramids, and I think pyramids are, are a great example because everybody knows what a pyramid looks like, right? And the deal is if you read von Donneken and all these ancient astronaut guys say effectively the same thing, that the pyramids just sort of appeared overnight, that you know Egyptians were sort of – the ancient Egyptians were just barely eking out a living, tilling the land, and then bam, out of nowhere – they're building some of the, the most enormous architecturally sophisticated structures the world had ever, has ever seen. It's things that you'll, you'll even hear them say, we still can't build a pyramid even with our modern technology. But these 
primitive Egyptians, these primitive Africans were able to do it. Of course, they couldn't have done it. They must have had help from the outside. That, even when Van Donek, and we know a lot more about uh, Egypt, um, uh, Egyptian architectural uh, uh, capacities today, more today than we knew when Van Donek was writing, but even when Van Donek was writing Chariots of the Gods, we had a hell of a better idea about pyramid building than, than he suggests. The deal is the pyramids, in fact, did not suddenly appear sort of perfect. I mean, that, that, actually, this is a really nice um, example, a nice um, exercise that I give my students in looking at the archaeological record and saying, can archaeologists tell when a technology is, is, uh, is entirely aboriginal, is, is, is develops in situ or in place, and Contrast that with an, uh, with an instance in which the technology comes in from the outside. And one of the ways we do that is we ask the question, all right, are there the, the kind of halting, faltering steps leading up to a perfection of that technology? Do we see incremental – do we see incremental steps? Do we see mistakes? Do we see trial and error? Do we see – oh, back to the drawing board – when we see that, we, for whatever technology we're talking about, if we're talking about agriculture or metallurgy or pyramid building, when we see those, those halting, faltering, trial and errors, we know we are in the presence of an indigenous development, a sequence of slow and steady improvement. Um, when we see a technology, again, whether it's agriculture or metallurgy or, or if, if, if it relates to math or a calendar system or construction of a pyramid, if we see it literally just show up in a very, very short period of time, fully formed, fully developed, that's when we as archaeologists say, you know, it looks like this came in from somewhere else. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
Now, I'll give you a really lame example. Here, I dig in Connecticut. We had our archaeology field school. We were out in the field for, for six weeks. And among the things we find in Connecticut is we find pottery, you know, ceramics. The oldest pottery we find in Connecticut is 3,000 years old, and it's, it ain't really fancy stuff, but it's a pretty much a complete technology. In other words, we don't see mistakes, we don't see errors, we don't see a slow and steady development. It just sort of, bam, shows up. And so we are more than willing to entertain the hypothesis that, you know, this 3,000-year-old pottery in Connecticut just sort of shows up. It looks a lot like the stuff in New York State where we do see incremental steps in the development of ceramics. So we're pretty confident that Pottery making moved in as a technology, fully formed, into Connecticut around 3,000 years ago. Now, if pyramids really did show up, bam, instantly in, in Egypt, we sure as hell would have to consider the possibility that that technology moved in from the outside. Now, of course, before we consider the frog people of Alpha Centauri, we might consider the ziggurat builders of Mesopotamia who are building large, monumentally scaled, sort of pyramid-like structures a little before the Egyptians. We might consider them first, you know, Occam's razor. Let's go with the simplest explanation. But we don't even need to do that because the notion that this technology kind of appeared fully formed is absolutely, categorically, totally, 100%. Have I used enough uh, qualifiers there? Wrong. (laughs) Totally wrong. Here's the deal. Um, The earliest Egyptian pharaohs, guys whose names we know on these pharaoh lists, were buried in these one-story brick structures called mastabas. They essentially are these these large sort of rectangular buildings. There's a big fancy um, basement in which their their coffins are placed. But the mastaba is a a rectangular building, um, like one story high, and over time these mastabas did get larger and larger. And then we come to the pharaoh Djoser, who's like in the third dynasty, and apparently he decides he wants something bigger and fancier, right? He doesn't want just a mastaba. He wants something bigger. And so his burial structure, which is, is placed in a place called Saqqara in Egypt, is in fact sort of one mastaba superimposed over the other with each one getting smaller. So technically it's not a pyramid because it, a pyramid should be, what, four triangles of, with, a, with a common apex. It needed a common apex. So it's, doesn't, it's not like that. It's called a step pyramid. And so that first monumentally scaled tomb for a pharaoh is not, a, not very fancy. It's kind of simple. Um, it's made mostly of brick or small stones that, that kind of lean in on, on one another. And that's the first one of these. The next pharaoh who decides that you know, he wants something bigger and fancier than that, first thing, they're going to build him a huge set of tiered mastabas, right? That's how they start. But somewhere along the line, his architect decided, you know, if I fill in the steps, I can make something even more impressive. That is a real, true, very steep-sided pyramid. So that's what's started at a place called Nadum. Here's what happens. They get partway through the project, and cracks start forming along the interior of the, the pyramid, its core. 
because the pyramid is way too steep. That is, these guys, these architects, they're working. This is seat of the pants stuff. They've never done this before. The engineers and architects of Egypt are, you know, they're, they're, they're working with new materials. They're working with a new kind of structure. They get partway done and they abandon it. In fact, this pyramid today can be visited, and it's called the Collapsed Pyramid because the thing was so badly done, it essentially, whether it was a catastrophic collapse or not, nobody's exactly sure, but they just sort of let it slump in on itself because it wasn't working out. The next pyramid they build, they try at a, a, a less steep angle. They go, oh, let's, let's make it a little gentler, and they get about two-thirds of the way up. Now, here's another mistake that the, 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 the architects and engineers made. The base of this pyramid, three of the corners are on bedrock. There's a little bit of sand, bedrock underneath, so that's not moving. The third corner, there's no bedrock. It's nothing but sand. So what happens is as it's getting heavier and heavier and as they're working their way up, the, so- the corner that's on the soft sand starts to sink into the sand. And so it settles at a different rate than those corners that are on the bedrock. And once again, you start getting cracks in the pyramid core. In fact, it got so bad that where the, the pharaoh was going to be buried inside the core of that thing, right? That it, was, it looked to the Egyptians that that whole thing was going to collapse, which would have been probably pretty bad for them when they had to tell Pharaoh, uh, look, um, your burial chamber, uh, it collapsed. They actually ended up trying to shore this thing up with large poles of cedar to try to keep the thing open. Now, whether the pharaoh saw this and pitched a fit and said, no freaking way I'm getting buried in that. That's crap. (laughs) Or if the the engineers and architects said, you know, this is – we're going to tell the pharaoh this ain't a great idea. So understand, they're two-thirds of the way through. The thing is obviously not going to work. They start building another pyramid. This is the third try for this, this poor pharaoh. Apparently, they didn't like the fact that, well, now it looks like a construction site. It looks like an abandoned construction site. They decided that to finish it off, even though it would never be the, 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 um, the, the, the eternal abode of the pharaoh's soul, they decided to finish it off. But they realized if they continued at the angle they were working on, the whole thing would collapse. So they actually changed the angle of the top third of the pyramid. That's why that pyramid actually is called the Bent Pyramid. Because if you look at it, you go, something not right about that. Yeah, because they changed the angle of it. So it's actually not a triangle. What is it, a a trapezoid or something? And it looks like hell, but I guess it looks better than if they had just sort of said, let's walk away from this thing and leave it half finished. It's the third pyramid in the sequence of three. They finally, you know what they did was they started this pyramid at the same angle that the top of the bent pyramid is, which is about the angle that all subsequent Egyptian pyramids are built, which is like 45 degrees. The original pyramid, the the, the, the collapsed pyramid, they they tried that sucker at like 70 degrees. It was crazy. And of course, the the, the sharper that angle, the the steeper that angle, the more rock you need and the heavier it's going to be. Um, the, the bed pyramid, the lower part of it, they started at 55 degrees. That wasn't right. They finally settled on about 45 degrees, which is the, now the red pyramid, the final pyramid in this sequence of three. And all subsequent pyramids are built at that angle. Now, that whole process from the, the, the big Mastabas to the first of the, to, to the, the red pyramid and then to the, the three pyramids at Giza, that is the, the absolute pinnacle of pyramid construction, takes about 
four or five generations. It's close mm-hmm. to 100 years. So this notion that you look at the pyramids at Giza, the, the largest one, Khufu's pyramids, five, almost 500 feet high. It's spectacular. It's, it's, it's absolutely enormous. It's extremely sophisticated. But that's not the first one they built. It took them 100 years to figure out how to build that sucker. So now here's the deal. This is why, I'm, again, I tell people, people tell me, oh, but the Egyptians, the technology was so sophisticated. Yeah, it got that way. But I tell you what. What's your other hypothesis? That ancient aliens arrived on Earth. Now, these are guys who can, who can build spaceships that can traverse the galaxy. But they're having trouble figuring out how to pile up rocks so they don't fall down? They built the pyramids? <laughs> Screw that, man. I'm not getting in their spaceship if they can't figure out how to build pyramids. It's, clear, it's a really clear example of an archaeological record that shows – the very human process of, hey, I got an idea. Let's try this. Oh, f- that doesn't work. Let's try something <laughs> else. Let's fix it over here. How about jamming a piece of wood in here? No, that's not going to work. How about let's change the angle? Oh, that looks like hell. How about that? Finally, we get it after four or five generations of attempts. Well, that's a human process, man. That's not extraterrestrials I- introducing a technology. That's human beings figuring stuff out. You know, it's like when I, it's, it's funny, our technology now progresses so enormously quickly that, you know, when I show kids today my first generation iPod, they laugh at me. They go, oh my God, <laughs> it's so big, it's so fat. Oh man, this how, how many of your eight tracks will it hold? Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go, man. And, so, and that's, how, that's not even 10 years, that kind of technological development. But, you know, I, I even, again, I even do that in class. I show them the sequence of iPods. And I say, look, when you see something like that, would you believe it ex- that this was you know, back, back engineered from some extraterrestrial spacecraft? If the iPod Touch showed up, bam, out of nowhere, with no antecedents, no steps, no sequence leading to it, then you might be able to say, gee, I wonder where that came from. But you have this entire sequence of improved technology, of it getting better, faster, smaller. Uh, with, and the pyramids are getting better. They're, they're probably doing it faster. They're getting bigger, though. Um, and so, so you know, any kind of the hypotheses that rely on people being stupid and not working hard just don't work. You know, this is uh, it, this comes up in in IT a lot in computer work. Uh, I I work with you, you think well, I think I work with really smart people, but uh-huh. some and, and I guess it doesn't make you dumb if you believe this, but um, you look into it, right? So a lot of computer people think that computer technology uh, must have come from reverse engineered stuff that happened at the Roswell crash, right? And, and I'm like, well, <laughs> why then would would we reverse engineer this completely developed technology? And start off with the most basic thing of, you know, vacuum tubes and then work up to the transistor and then work up to integrated circuitry. And then, you know, that why would Moore's Law exist? All these things don't make any sense unless right. we're yeah. actually developing it. But, uh, yeah, people, people it's, it's, underestimate right. us. You know? It's crazy stuff. But you see that, too. You know, when you look at um, – I think this is hilarious, too – is that – uh, 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 one of the artifacts that Van Donneken points to, I believe in Chariots of the Gods, I mean, he's, he makes a big deal about it, is the sarcophagus slab of the Maya king uh, Pakal, who was the, leader, the ruler of Palenque in the 7th century AD. And I don't know if you see this, that Pakal is one of, the, one of the very few of the Maya kings who was actually buried in a pyramid. 
Uh, the, the, the Maya didn't build pyramids like the Egyptians. They look different. The function is different. Sizes are different. The raw materials are different. But in this one case, we've got a, a Maya leader, a Maya pharaoh, who's buried in, in the, the pyramid. And he's buried in a, a, a stone sarcophagus, and there's a lid on top of it that Van Donneken says it, it's an image of Pakal. And he says, this looks like a spaceman. But the, the hilarious thing is, he, you know, he shows his foot and he says his foot is on some kind of pedal, like rockets are like driving a Volkswagen. You know, is, where's, this, where's, where's the, uh, the, the, the clutch? You know, where's the, <laughs> what, what are you talking about? But the funniest thing is that Pakal's got like this communication device, according to, now according to all Mayanists, it's a very elaborate headdress. And the Maya, you see this in a lot of Maya art, that the kings wore these feathered headdresses. But Von Donneken says, no, 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 this is a communication device, and those are the antennas. And I think to myself, you know, I haven't needed an antenna on a cell phone in 10 years. We've, we have progressed beyond needing antennas on cell phones. But apparently these extraterrestrials, they still needed antennas on their communication devices. Uh, and where are the iPads, you know, and, and the technology that we've developed? But that you never see in this art that's supposed to be extraterrestrial aliens, that they're all wearing spacesuits that look like, you know, 1960s Hamilton standard suits. It's this, it's, it's this real sort of anachronisms that, that, that our technology has already surpassed what these technologies are supposed to look like who are from people, these aliens who are supposed to be able to, to you know, set, to, to fly across the universe. It's really pretty bizarre. Um, I know that the guy, one of the one of the the, the key minds behind this, the notion that computers are back engineered from some spacecraft, I believe he also claims that microwave ovens clearly couldn't have been developed by people, but that those also were on the spaceships, which I think is great. So here you got these guys in spaceships, and you know they can eat. Uh, uh, you know, frozen food, microwavable food they've got. I, I, at the Roswell site, my understanding is when they did archaeology there, they did find some trays that said microwave safe. So maybe that's where we got microwave ovens from too. <laughs> so what, is, uh, some other, uh, what are some other forms of evidence that, for these um, ancient astronauts that, that are claimed? Well, for, okay, so the, you know the Maya calendar? I mean, that's a big issue now too, right? I just, there was a show on yesterday about all of these folks who are making a ton of money selling stuff to prepare you for the, the end of the universe in 2012, which is really pretty funny because the, the, the real extreme 2012 guys say it's not just that Earth is going to suffer catastrophic earthquakes, but the whole universe is going to end. You know, in a whole new, the, the, the universe is just going to like sort of wink out. So, you know, getting a bomb shelter and getting a whole lot of freeze-dried food, I don't think that's going to help a lot. But nevertheless, the Maya did have a very sophisticated calendar. They don't predict the end of everything in 2012. It's just the end of, a, of one of their cycles of time. And their, their expectation was the world would continue. Just a new cycle of time would continue on the next day. The Maya calendar is, is very – these guys, the, the Maya, developed the concept of zero. They had a base 20 numbering system. And again, you can see in the, in the archaeological record the very – slow, incremental development of their writing system, of their number system, of their math, and of their calendars. But you will find the ancient astronaut crowd essentially saying, how could a primitive, and they use that term unabashedly, a primitive, simple uh, jungle people have developed this sophisticated calendar. And it's, it's insulting to people, it's insulting to the Maya, it's insulting to our ancient ancestors altogether. Um, 
So calendars. Uh, metallurgy. How could people have figured out metallurgy? You know, we've got, we know that metallurgy was developed in several parts of the world. We have a pretty good idea of how it was done. Some of the earliest copper artifacts don't involve any metallurgy at all. The copper is found in a virtually 100% pure state as the element copper. And people figured out, you know, if you bang this stuff, it doesn't break like rock, but it, but it molds to shapes. So we can make spear points and we can make necklaces and we can make uh, armor out of these pieces of copper. And it is in all likelihood they found seams of copper. Uh, and when they melted those seams of copper to get the copper out, the copper became uh, 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 um, other stuff melted into the copper. It, it, impurities melted into the copper, and <clears> they <throat> realized, oh my god, that makes it that makes the copper harder or better. And that's how bronze was developed. And they figured out, okay, we can do that. And then they did the same thing with iron. And again, we have this over thousands of years. This again, trial and error, fits and starts. And yet, you have the ancient astronaut crowd saying, oh no, they couldn't have figured out that metallurgy. It must have been brought to them by ancient astronauts. Interestingly, then, the astronauts started people with copper, then moved this up to bronze, and then eventually iron. And, well, why did they... How come they didn't just give us iron? Well, why why does that process look so much like individual people figuring stuff out? And that's, that's... Essentially, that's at the core of all of this. They really don't know. They're ignorant of the simple archaeological sequences that lead archaeologists to believe that these things were developed indigenously by people over a long period of time i think uh if people who play the game civilization would probably be inclined to find this whole thing ridiculous because you have Uh to work so hard to develop these technologies but i think there's these there's certain little things that uh this crowd has sort of picked on uh that they find to be um anachronistic can we talk about a few of these little items i got a list here just if you'll just sort of give your quick impression of these things sure Okay, uh, the number one, uh, the Antikythera mechanism. Again, my God! I mean, first of all, what's how old is that mechanism? It's I mean, it dates to Greek times, doesn't it? Yeah, the Greeks are pretty goddamn smart people, and the fact that they were <laughs> able to figure out gearings and it's a, it's a sophisticated piece of equipment. I mean, there are any one of a number of of of. Uh, of folks who have studied this and don't are not particularly surprised that the Greeks were able to figure this stuff. Out. Hey, you know the 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 Greeks figured out the size of the Earth. All right, they they knew the the world wasn't flat. The Greeks had a had a philosopher who figured out that maybe all of matter is made up by this single indivisible particle called an atom. So either either you say, wow, Kenny. These are this is more evidence of extraterrestrials introducing atomic theory and and uh, teaching the Greeks how to figure out the size of the Earth along with this mechanism, or else you know after a while you start thinking, well, gee, maybe they were just pretty goddamn smart. And uh, and again, it's this sort of this uh, this this uh, uh, this feeling that because it, people lived in the past, that they necessarily were not as smart as we are. These guys are as smart as we are. Their brains are as big as ours, uh, have as many connections as ours. They just lived in a period before our own. My, my guess is that you know, the average American can't program a DVR, but the average ancient Greek probably could if, if they only had one. So again, merely saying, wow, that's really sophisticated, isn't an argument at all. And what about uh, the Baghdad battery? <laughs> Baghdad battery. The, my favorite um, treatment of Baghdad battery is from Mythbusters, where they did everything they could. And, you know, maybe, maybe 
you could like electroplate something. But that was about it. They could not produce nearly enough uh, a voltage to do much of anything. I've had students actually, and I have an experimental archaeology class where people have gone through the whole process of making replica Baghdad batteries. And these things never, you hook up a little voltmeter to it, never amount to anything. My larger argument is, okay, let's say they were able to produce electricity. And maybe that's something that the Mesopotamians couldn't have done on their own. Maybe that's something that was introduced from the outside. An archaeologist is always going to look at an artifact like that and say, okay, what's the overall context? If, the, if you are telling me that, well, maybe this battery was used in a, as a way to illuminate, say, the interior of a pyramid. So they actually had light bulbs. They used electricity. They had electric light. Say, okay, that's a great hypothesis. Light bulbs break. Archaeologists find glass from light bulbs. Do we ever find those in an archaeological site of the time of the Baghdad battery? No, we don't. Well, how about the wires? How about the way of moving the electricity from that battery to whatever this light source is? Do we ever find, we find copper wire, any kind of, of a wire, any way of, of moving those electrons along? No, we never find that. How about any artistic depictions that clearly show illuminating lights? No, we never find any of those. So the overall context is, well, there is no context. So the Baghdad battery is a really cool one-off. How exactly it was used, not sure. It certainly is not beyond the capability of people mucking around with chemistry a couple of thousand years ago and figuring, wow, this, this actually does something. This, this plates, this, this electroplates um, uh, an object. But even that, there's no evidence of that electroplating in any archaeological artifact. Archaeologists are, 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 are based, every, we base everything we say ultimately on the material record, on physical evidence. And without physical evidence, other than the fact that we have this sort of interesting artifact, uh, the rest is all just pure speculation. So Baghdad battery, sorry, ain't gonna, that doesn't fly. How about the Saqqara bird and the uh, two gold airplanes they found in South America? Yeah, uh, those are in- incredibly interesting. They look a lot like birds, don't they? Yeah, but, 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 but they might could fly, I saw on television. <laughs> yeah, well, th- th- there you go. In other words, let's simply apply you know, Occam's razor. Right? Arche- uh, uh, scientists always bring up Occam's razor. The notion that, I mean, in its simplest form, that look, if you have multiple possible explanations for something, let's go with the one that requires the fewest other assumptions until and unless we have some evidence showing that, well, no, that hypothesis doesn't work. Um, it's kind of like, you know, when I talk to a creationist and, and say, well, but there are dinosaur bones. And the creationist says, yes, but the devil could have put them there to fool people like you into thinking there was such a thing as evolution. And I say, you know, you're right. That could explain it. But your explanation requires... Uh, a devil, a devil who wants to fool me personally, and a devil who can create the bones of animals who never existed and then put them in solid rock. There are a lot of, a lot of uh, assumptions there. All I'm assuming is you got bones, you got animals. That's it. So my hypothesis requires fewer assumptions. So if you've got something that kind of looks like a bird and somebody says, yeah, but it also looks like a plane, I go, yeah, but... My assumption, my hypothesis that it's a bird assumes that people saw birds, thought they were cool, and made artistic depictions of birds. Your assumption that your hypothesis is that it's an airplane requires so many 
absolutely unsupported assertions that, you know, you keep that, you, that, you put that, you put that on the back burner, but until you've got some hard evidence that extraterrestrials were here, by the way, with airplanes, uh, did their rockets need the wings? Are they flying the space shuttle? Not quite sure about that, but until you've got some hard evidence for that, let's go with the simpler explanation, which is uh, those are probably artistic depictions of birds. <laughs> and how about the crystal skulls? Oh, well, the crystal skulls are great. I, I, I recommend highly anybody interested in the crystal skulls. Archaeology magazine did an article on them in the last five years, right after the Indiana Jones and the crystal skull movie came out. And the bottom line is you can show with absolute certainty that every one of those is a fake. Every single one that when you look at these things very carefully under a microscope, you find evidence of a lapidary wheel. You find evidence of a power tool having been used to carve these things out. So, I mean, maybe they still signal the doom of the world. I don't know about that, but they were all made in the 19th century. They sure seem uh, to signal the doom of the Indiana Jones series. Uh, well, yeah, that, that <laughs> kind of sucked, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it really oh, did. But, but I'm, I'm going to do another one where that Harrison Ford is going to be in a walker, you know, chasing <laughs> Nazis or something. Well, but, uh, yeah, well, they need Nazis. They should have done the story. They should have done uh, an Atlantis episode. That would have been much better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Anyway, so, so, yeah, yeah. so you've actually... Don't make it, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> we'll do a retcon. They'll undo four completely. Well, you did... Um, I think a really good job of introducing some of the archaeological method uh, here. Uh, could you just sort of give a brief overview? Because I imagine there's going to be somebody listening to this show who's been thinking about, should I become an archaeologist? And uh, what kind of things do real archaeologists do to find the answers to questions like this? Well, you know, listen, man, if you're going to be an archaeologist, the things you have to love are dirt. You've got to love dirt because, man, you're going to be in dirt a lot. You, you can't be bothered by scorpion snakes mosquitoes, ticks, um, whiny students who think it's too hot and humid to go dig. You know, that, if that stuff bothers you, don't go into archaeology. But I think that the, the thing about archaeology, and it's that one of the, the interesting things that I have found, and I, don't, I haven't performed like a formal statistical analysis of this, but when you ask, when I ask most um, people I know who have jobs, Real jobs. You know, what got you interested in what you do in becoming a doctor and in, in being an engineer or uh, being a teacher? Most of these people came to this at some point when they were maybe in, in high school, maybe in college. They really didn't know exactly what they were going to do, what would interest them. And they finally, when they began taking some courses, they, they honed in on the particular uh, uh, major that became their profession. That's not the case with most of the people I know who went into archaeology. Most archaeologists, you ask them, when did you become interested in archaeology? They'll tell you, well, you know, when I was four. You know, when I went outside and I dug a hole and I found a piece of glass and I thought, whoa. And then, you know, you're reading a book that people will pay you to go play in the dirt and find cool shit. But that's what I, when, 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 I, when students want, you know, a single sentence definition of archaeology, and they don't want something very sophisticated. I tell them, you know, archaeology is about digging up cool. <laughs> and they, you know, they look at me and I said, no, write that down because that will definitely be on the exam because that's what we do. Now, some of my colleagues don't like to admit that because they want to be like really serious scientists and we want to answer questions about. Uh, the, about culture and civilization, and that's that's true. We do want to do that, but the bottom line is we get really hooked on digging up cool. Shit. 
And as the reason for that, uh, this is – I have a woman in my class uh, in, my, in my field school because she's got to be like in her mid-30s. She's got a couple of kids. She's always been interested in archaeology, never had the opportunity to do it, is now going back to school. Her kids are old enough. They're going to school, coming back to archaeology. She did my field school. And she was digging in a hole. And this is somebody I know will be an archaeologist, okay? She was digging in her little one-meter square. And she had – this was a, a soapstone quarry. It's a 3,000-year-old quarry where the native people of northwestern Connecticut were quarrying the steatite, soft stone, in order to make vessels. And she found a part of the vessel. She was very excited by that. And at, at part of the vessel was broken. The handle had been broken off. And as she's excavating, she finds the broken handle. And the woman begins to weep. Aww. And I go, what's wrong? And she goes – 3,000, you don't understand. I'm touching this thing. And 3,000 years ago, that's the last time a human being working on this broke it, probably said, oh, fuck. (laughs) Probably did in their language and abandoned it. And now 3,000 years later, I get to make that direct connection to a person who's been gone for 3,000 years. That's pretty awesome. That mm. the ability to do that, to actually hold in your hand something that somebody from 500 years ago, 1,000, 10,000, a million years ago, that kind of direct connection, and then to wonder. It, it's, it's the kind of thing I, I, I tell students. It's like imagine the world is a time capsule, right? And imagine if you were doing a time capsule, the things you would put in, how would you feel if 1,000 years after you're dead, somebody – has your photo album or a, a, a CD with your favorite songs or um, your iPod with, with, or whatever. And they're wondering who that person was who left that behind thousands of years ago. So for an archaeologist, the world's our time capsule. <clears throat> people not intentionally, in most cases, well, in burials, they're intentional, but people left behind stuff. They lost stuff. They threw it away. In our case, at this site, 3,000 years later, we are able to think about those people to hold something in our hand that was left behind by them. You know, listen, I don't, I'm not sure that there's any such thing as, you know, real immortality where, you know, you you die and you wake up again and you're somewhere else. But one way that people become immortal is through the stuff they make and use and leave behind because we get to dig that stuff up. We get to think about who those people were. What were their lives like? How is it different from – how are they different from us? How are they the same as us? How did they respond to the challenges of environmental change? People have been doing that. For, for literally millions of years, we're not the first people to be, to be faced with environmental change. How did other people deal with that? How did people deal with pollution? We're not the first people to have to deal with environmental degradation. Other people have screwed up their environments in the past. We do it much better than they did. We're sophisticated, but other people have screwed up their farmland, have screwed up the air, have screwed up their surroundings and had to deal with it. How did they manage that? Or – are we doomed to, to, to our culture is doomed to extinction just like theirs became extinct? It, it's that kind of that direct connection to our ultimate roots that is just so cool about archaeology. Well, I love, I love the, the, cool. I was going to say, I love the Venus of Willendorf because it shows even 20,000 years ago, guys were still chubby chasers. 
You know, I, I, it's the, 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 the thing is about that, you know, I don't know. You know you, it, it's true. I, I, I heard this brilliant lecture on the Venus figurines where this woman was saying, well, you know, there's, there's the, whole, the whole Playboy hypothesis that, you know, these things were – that they were sort of paleo porn that, you know, guys would get in the cave and go, hey, check this out. Oh, my God. You know, whatever. Uh, or, or it's a fertility symbol. Look at this. This is a symbol of this woman is obviously pregnant and very healthy, and she will give birth to many babies. And then I had this. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a woman archaeologist who says, no, these are all self portraits that women are looking at their own bodies, saying, aren't we beautiful? And wow. these are. So it's like you know, it's. It's one of those deals where, as an archaeologist, I have to step back and say these are all really interesting hypotheses. We may never know. It may be the whole chubby chaser thing. I'm not going to say. <laughs> I was joking. Oh yeah, well, listen, no, for people who get pissed about that, they will know that it, that Kenny is not the guy who brought that up, right? That's true. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that, you, you can leave your email address at the end of this. I I, I joke about it, but I will often get now based on this show and other shows that I've done. I will receive emails, some very nice people saying, "Oh, I wish I could. You know, I'd love to take a class with you." But I also get, I get emails from people who clearly are, are, you know, are living in their parents' basement and have nothing better to do than bitch about this stuff. I literally had one email where this guy just went on and on based on some, some show that I did. But I was an asshole and a jerk and a shithead and I didn't know anything. And then at the very end of it, he goes, don't bother responding. This is my mom's email account. I go, oh my god! <laughs> crap. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, man. So, I'm, I'm I'm expecting not to get any of those from your listeners, but you can get those. Yeah, we 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 will. It'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, we'll enjoy them. Our, so, our, our, we get really good emails. So, yeah. I bet. Good. So, so Ken, what's yeah. your favorite monster nowadays? My favorite monster for a while was the chupacabra, but it really isn't anymore. Um, ben Radford uh, has written a wonderful book on the about the chupacabra, where he's completely just killed it for me. Now the latest one, though, is I understand that uh, that Alaska has its own Loch Ness monster. So that's one of the new things. Is there's a a sea creature? There's a video. I I got a question for you guys because you deal with monsters all the time, right? Mm-hmm. What is it about monsters that 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 somehow screws up the focusing mechanisms on digital cameras. Mm, that's a really yeah, good question. Uh, we can't answer that though. Yeah. In all these years. What is that? I mean, it, it's it's just it's so frequent that when these guys are taking these pictures, number one, they can never hold the freaking thing steady. Are, is it because they're scared? Are they shaking so much? And 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 they never can focus the damn thing. It's no, magic, you know? Ken. It's mm-hmm. magic. It's a, it really is kind of amazing. Um, so I don't know. My favorite monster. It's it's you know I love them all. I'd hate to have to choose one. It'd be like choosing between my kids. So that's our, what's our, that was our next question. Who's your favorite kid? <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, it wouldn't be one of my own. So it'd be somebody else's. Uh, that's fair, isn't it? Yeah, that just makes good sense. That's honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. How come you know? Whenever I watch those the monster hunting shows on TV, how do you get a television show where you never actually find what you're looking for? How does that work? <sighs> Tell me about it. I, it's I, just, have you seen the, the the South Park episode where they did the little thing about the ghost hunters, where these guys pee themselves? 
Yes. Yes. They interpret it as some sort of ectoplasm left behind. (laughs) They go, oh, my God, but it's sort of – and what is it? One of the boys says, you know, when they're going crazy, he basically says, are you f***ing kidding me? And that's kind of how I respond to these these shows. And the the, the good thing about the shows is I don't have a a representative sample by any means, but most of the college kids that I know, and some of whom are not as skeptical as they ought to be, do tell me that those monster hunting shows are the stupidest things they've ever seen. So even they recognize, come on, guys, you know, you're out in the woods, you got the really cool equipment, you got the Swiss Army knife, you got the really cool camo going on. And uh, I saw one recently where they kept referring to the area as it's really – what squatchy? I think finding Bigfoot. It's very squatchy out here. Squatchy feel to it. It's just sort of. <laughs> they, honest to God, can really? they? They got a second season out of that show. They're they're pulling a second season. No joke. Uh, uh, well, you know. Yeah. What can I tell you, man? I, I mean, they should be. They should be finding something by now. You know, you kind of wish they would. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. It, well, and I think what they found is that people like to watch and make fun of the people on the show. And uh, in that we sense, hope. it's – well, no, I, I think that's – I mean if you – That's what it is. Yeah. And it, unscientific, but if you, the next time you see it on Twitter as my uh, or former uh, guest to the show, uh, Matt Crowley, came on and uh, talked to us about it. Um, he saw Finding Bigfoot was trending, so he clicked on the trending to like watch and see what was happening on Twitter, and it yeah. was like, oh my god, these people are idiots. Oh, oh, these are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe if it's listen, if people get entertained that way, that's fine, yeah. I guess. I know we, I grew up on Gilligan's Island, and you know, but I, I didn't pretend it was real, right? You know, so <laughs> oh no, 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 that's 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 real. That's one of my favorite Dick Cavett lines. Was at some point after he had sort of lost his show, they asked him what he was working on, and he said a, a comedy version of Gilligan's Island. That's a good line. <laughs> That's an excellent line. <laughs> so, so what what's next for Ken? What's what what have you got working on? Are you doing a book? What's- well, here's the thing that I'm. Well, just got through a field school, all this cool stuff um, from a three thousand year old site. But the th- the big thing that I'm working on is. It's uh, and it is at this point a work in progress. And the working title is Archaeological Odysseys: uh, Fifty Sites in the United States You Should See Before You Die. I know that's lame and cliche, but effectively, what I'm trying to do is put together a list of, of these are publicly an um, archaeologist bucket list. You know, if somebody, <laughs> in fact, you're not the first person to bring that up. But say, I'm look, sure the joke know, pales in comparison. Pale. Mm. You know, I got, I got that. I got the, the pales in comparison. Um, I'm, I'll, I will leave it at that. In any event, so there's this really cool project I'm working on, which are sites that are open to the public. It's places that you really should go to see because they, they are seeing in person the cliff dwellings of Mesa Verde, seeing in person the huge earth pyramid at Cahokia, seeing in person the pictographs and petroglyphs in Dinosaur National Monument, that, that those are the kinds of things that people who do travel, who do touristy things around the country, these are really cool places to visit because you get to see the, the, what, our, what our human ancestors were able to do up close and personal. And so uh, the cool thing about the project is that of course, if I'm going to include a site on it, I have to go see the site. So I have been yeah. over the last couple of years, uh, every chance I get, traveling to these places, um, talking to park rangers and talking to the archaeologists and, and getting as much uh, information about these sites as I can, taking lots of pictures and sort of winnowing out some of the ones that aren't going to make the list and trying to get a nice good 50 that are spread out across the country that I think would you – know, people would – 
both these things have to be visually arresting. And it can't just be, well, in this field was a really important site. You can't see anything here now, but trust us, it was really cool. Now, these have to be places where anybody, you don't have to be an archaeologist, would go and you'd go, wow, that's really impressive. That's huge. That's um, uh, that's gorgeous. That's so mysterious. And then talk about this is what it means. This is who built these things. This is how old these places are. Um, so it's kind of a travel guide, time travel guide. Let's call it that. Um, mm. So I've been working on that for a while and, and sort of uh, uh, we'll be doing a little bit more of that. We go go uh, off uh, to see some sites in August. Is, uh, nice. is my hometown still in there, the, the Etowah Indian Mounds? Oh yeah! Oh, Etowah is definitely is. Cool. Etowah cool. is a spectacular site. Down in the we did a whole run through the southeast. So there's Etowah, there's Moundville, there's Crystal River in Florida, there's Colomoke Mounds and uh, uh, Town Town Creek Mounds up in North Carolina. So the whole the southeast has a spectacular array of these really impressive mound sites where Native Americans. Some of these guys were in fact probably at the tail end of their um, existence, were encountered by DeSoto, the Spanish explorer, who wrote about some of these large sites, these huge um, Indian cities. Um, and that's, you know, the, my, my deal with all this is I've, I've been frustrated time and time again by how little people know about the, 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 the prehistoric past of our own country. So you talk to kids in high school, they've heard of the pyramids, yeah, they heard of Stonehenge, but you ask them about Etowah, you talk about Cahokia, you talk about Mesa Verde, and they look at you, what? What are you talking about? Uh, Cahokia, which is the largest Native American population center north of the Rio Grande, uh, prehistorically, the site may have had 10, 20,000 people, 200 earth pyramids. One of the pyramids they built is, the, by volume, the fifth largest in the world. That includes all the Egyptian pyramids and the Mesoamerican pyramids. And when I was, I was there, I first visited Cahokia um, I don't know, 30 years ago, and when I asked the guy at the hotel you know, how I could get in St. Louis, because it's near St. Louis, how could I get to Cahokia? He looked at me. He didn't know what I was talking about, and he's like five, you know, twenty miles away from the place. And when I told him, you know, the big Indian site, he leaned over and said, "Oh, sir, there haven't been any Indians around here in years." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Holy shit!" <laughs> you know, at that moment, I said, "No, I have to, I have to tell people about these spectacular sites, some of which are in their own backyards, open to the public, mm-hmm. cool museums, cool places to visit, where you can." First-hand experience a little piece of that past. So I'm, I'm hoping idea. to be able to do that. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So let us know when it's finished, okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, listen, most people, when you buy a copy of Frauds, probably you should buy a copy of that book when it comes out too. So, you know, you'll have a match set. That's true. That's true. You no, know, totally. Well, th- thanks again for coming to talk to us. Oh, it's always a blast, Thank guys. You. Always have a lot of fun. I cursed a lot less, and it wasn't intentional. I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> There'll be another time. I'm oh. sure we can think of something else to talk. Yeah. <laughs> Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. Today you heard an interview with Dr. Ken Fader about ancient astronauts. The interview was conducted by myself, Blake Smith, and Dr. Karen Stalsno. Ben Radford, our regular co-host, will be back soon. As a humanist, the idea that space aliens traveled across the galaxy to teach our ancestors to stack rocks is highly offensive to me. Archaeologists have demonstrated that our ancestors developed powerful technologies to create the great monuments of antiquity, and it is an insult to their ingenuity to write off those great works as hack work done by space gods. 
Monster Talk is presented by Skeptic Magazine. If you enjoy the show, you can support it by subscribing to Skeptic Magazine, subscribing to eSkeptic, by donating a few dollars at our website, monstertalk.org, by writing a review for us on iTunes, by joining our Facebook group, just search Monster Talk on Facebook, all one word, or just by telling your friends about the show. The Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys and is used by permission. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today. Today's episode was also brought to you by David Rodriguez, who was generous enough to give us a donation. I bet you thought I'd forgotten about you, David. Totally didn't.